Welcome back to the MedThread. We are cluing up on our series of episodes that involve our students, their questions, and evidence-based practice, and this one certainly showcases a mix of topics. Most definitely. We have four today, and first off, the students will discuss options for shingles vaccination and what to do if a patient has recently been infected with the shingles virus. Should they get vaccinated, and if so, when? We will also touch on reflux and heartburn in pregnancy. What do we recommend if ranitidine is not effective? Next, which agent is better for treatment of diarrhea as a result of chemotherapy, Lomatil or Imodium? And lastly, do inhaled corticosteroids for asthma affect a child's growth? We'll be back as a duo next month where we discuss a topic that bombards us in practice, those ever so frequent warnings about QT prolongation. How and why do so many medications have this warning? What is the risk exactly? And in whom might we be concerned? So sit back, relax, and enjoy the last episode of this series featuring our students. Hi everyone, I'm Adam, and I'm a third year from the School of Pharmacy. Thanks for tuning in to today's MedThread. Myself and my fellow classmates are here today to discuss the herpes zoster infection, also known as shingles, and appropriate vaccination guidelines. Here with me today we have Olivia, Christy, Rebe Rebecca. Rebecca, did you want to start us off? Sure. Hi everyone. Today we'll be looking to see if it is safe for an elderly person to get the shingles vaccine if they have recently been diagnosed with shingles. Furthermore, we will do a thorough investigation as to which vaccine they should receive and when it is safe for them to receive it with respect to their latest herpes zoster infection. That seems to be a popular topic of conversation these days. Where would you go as a healthcare professional if you wanted to look up some information for your patient? Well, we began our search using all available resources, but we quickly learned that there were many guidelines that were different between American and Canadian references. We had to adapt our search strategy early on to account for these discrepancies, which meant limiting what information we took from up-to-date, Dynamed, CDC, and many American-based guidelines. We also learned early on that primary resources were harder to find on this topic compared to summary guidelines due to how new this area is with Shingrix vaccine coming to market pretty recently in 2017. But we use Health Canada guidelines and NACI a lot. And the pharmacist letter has some great articles comparing vaccines as well. Great. Rebecca, could you also give our listeners an overview of what shingles is? Sure. So shingles is the reactivation of the varicella zoster virus, which lies dormant in the dorsal root ganglion after prior exposure to varicella. This prior exposure can either be from having chickenpox or having received the chickenpox vaccine. So shingles presents as a painful rash that usually develops on one side of the body. This rash consists of blisters that typically scab over in 7 to 10 days and clear up within 2 to 4 weeks. For some people, the pain can last for months or even years after the rash goes away. This long-lasting pain is called post-herpetic neuralgia, and it is the most common complication of shingles. Okay, we get a lot of questions asking if shingles is contagious. Could you elaborate a little bit on this for us? Of course. So basically, you cannot catch shingles from somebody with shingles, and you cannot catch shingles from somebody with chickenpox. In order to get shingles, you have to have prior exposure to varicella. However, if you've never had chickenpox, you can get chickenpox from someone with an active shingles blister. So this information can be found on CDC website. Actually, I've even had people tell me that they heard if you get the shingles vaccine, you can give chickenpox to your unvaccinated grandchildren. 
However, the transmission of the vaccine virus has not been reported in clinical trials, as per Health Canada. Great. I'm glad we addressed this. As we know, there are two different vaccinations for herpes zoster. Did you want to talk a bit about this, Christy? Sure. So Zastavax was the first shingles vaccine and came out in 2006, and the second version came out in 2008. Shingrex consists of two doses given intramuscularly at zero and then two to six months later. Zastavax is a single subcutaneous injection. Just to note that there are more injection site side effects with the administration of Shingrex as compared to Zastavax. So is there anyone that can't have these vaccinations? Both vaccines are options in patients 50 and over that are immunocompetent. Shingrex is safe to use in patients that are immunocompromised as well, but Zastavax cannot be used in immunocompromised patients. People who have an allergy to any component of the vaccine should not receive the vaccine. Also, people with current herpes zoster infections should not be vaccinated. Interesting. So how does the efficacy between these vaccinations compare? Vaccine efficacy decreases with age and time since vaccination more quickly with Zastavax than with Shingrex. In fact, the incidence of herpes zoster three years post-immunization appears to be double in those vaccinated with Zastavax as compared to Shingrex. Essentially, there is significant waning of protection one year post-immunization with Zastavax. The lasting effect associated with Shingrex is due to the adjuvant, which induces higher cellular immune responses to help address the natural age-related decline in immunity. Awesome, Christy. So is there any clinical evidence you found to support this difference? I did find a clinical trial completed in Belgium. It was a small study with only 90 people aged 50 to 70. In the study, 45 patients received the two doses of Shingrex, two months apart, and the other group received the Zastavax vaccine. Results from the trial showed that the CD4-positive T-cell and humoral responses were higher with Shingrex and remained elevated for 42 months. From this trial, we can conclude that Shingrex is the preferred vaccination. It results in a greater immune response and is equally as safe as Zastavax. So now we're going to turn to Olivia. So once someone has had shingles, should they eventually get the vaccination? Yes, they should. Uh, vaccination is recommended regardless of shingles history, so patients who have already had shingles should still get the vaccine to prevent a second infection. Different safety concerns are not expected in persons with a history of shingles. The Canadian Immunization Guide recommends to wait at least one year after the latest shingles episode before starting the two-dose series of Shingrix, and that persons with an active uh, herpes zoster infection should not be immunized with the herpes zoster vaccine. The NACI concludes that there is fair evidence to recommend immunization, and that's grade B evidence, and the stated time frame of at least one year after the herpes zoster episode is a discretionary NACI recommendation based on expert opinion. NACI concludes that there is insufficient evidence to recommend an interval between a previous episode of herpes zoster and vaccination with RZV. So what about those lucky few who did not get the chickenpox as a child and have not been exposed to the varicella zoster virus? Shingrix is indicated regardless of varicella infection history. Almost all Canadians eligible for herpes zoster immunization will have had prior varicella exposure, even if they cannot remember. Otherwise, there is no known safety risk associated with immunization of healthy individuals who are susceptible to varicella. Serologic testing is not recommended before or after receiving, herpes zoster, after receiving the herpes zoster vaccine. 
However, if in the rare circumstance that an adult aged 50 years and older is known to be susceptible to varicella based on previous serological testing for another reason, um, the individual should be vaccinated with two doses of univalent varicella vaccine rather than the herpes zoster vaccine. That's because um, Shingrix has not been evaluated in persons who are seronegative to varicella and it is not indicated for the prevention of varicella. Very interesting. So what about those people that receive Zostavax between the time Zostavax was put onto the market and when Shingrix was released? So Shingrix is the preferred shingles vaccine and it's recommended even in patients that have previously been vaccinated with Zostavax or Zostavax 2. NACI recommends that those 50 years of age and over who have already been immunized with Zostavax be re-immunized with two doses of Shingrix at least one year after Zostavax and that's evidence level C. So again, this is a discretionary NACI recommendation that is based on expert opinion and the NACI concludes that there is insufficient evidence to recommend an interval between Zostavax and Shingrix and that's grade one evidence. So according to the CDC, which is an American resource, you should wait at least eight weeks after a patient receives Zostavax to administer Shingrix. That's evidence level C. They also say to administer Shingrix, especially if it has been more than five years since Zostavax or Zostavax 2 was given, as most of the protection is lost by then. Okay, so is there a consensus worldwide about when you should get the vaccination after a shingles infection? Well, everyone seems to agree that you should receive the shingles vaccine, but there seems to be no agreement about how soon after an active infection you can get the vaccine. UpToDate is an American resource, and they recommend that you wait three years to get the vaccination after an active infection, but there are also a FDA guideline on Dynamed that recommended that you only need to wait until the acute illness resolves to get the vaccination. Health Canada guidelines recommend to wait a minimum of one year between a herpes zoster infection and beginning the vaccine series. As you can see, there is conflicting evidence. So, what should we take from this? Since we are practicing here in Canada, we will err on the side of caution and go with the Health Canada guideline and recommend that those who have had a previous shingles infection are still eligible to receive the vaccine, but there should be a minimum of one year between the herpes zoster infection and beginning the vaccine series. Shingrex is the preferred vaccine for optimal shingles protection, receiving two doses at zero and two to six months. Okay, perfect. Thanks for the talk today, folks. It was interesting to see what recommendations are in place for those 50 and older and when they can actually get the herpes zoster vaccine after a current infection. There is definitely a lot of useful information to take home today. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, my name is Gina. I'm Megan. I'm Emily. And I'm Haley. We are all currently in our third year of pharmacy school here at Memorial University. We are here with you today to discuss gastroesophageal reflux disease, commonly known as GERD, specifically with respect to treatment in pregnant women. So today in our podcast, we are going to look at a specific patient, JR, and address the safety and efficacy of pharmacological treatment options in our patient. To complete this assessment, we follow an evidence-based practice approach, which included a thorough exploration into available databases such as PubMed and drugs in pregnancy and lactation. Both databases contain relevant studies pertaining to the GERD and treatment in pregnancy. To start, we would like to provide some background information about GERD. GERD is a digestive disorder classified as troublesome or frequent at acid regurgitation or heartburn. 
It can include signs and symptoms such as burning sensation in the stomach, chest pain, and frequent belching. As healthcare professionals, we know that GERD pathophysiology is multifactorial. However, there are a few pathophysiological reasons resulting in increased incidence in pregnancy. The first being increased intra-abdominal pressure as a result of added pressure due to the developing fetus. This causes stomach contents to be pushed upward, resulting in the presentation of signs and symptoms pertaining to GERD. Reduced tone in the lower esophageal sphincter can also occur during pregnancy. This is mediated by progesterone levels. Finally, alterations of gastrointestinal motility can occur in pregnancy and may decrease gastric emptying, again promoting signs and symptoms of GERD. To add on that, Many studies have found an increase in the incident of GERD symptoms during pregnancy. One longitudinal study stated that 30 to 80% of pregnant women will experience and complain of heartburn. With a high rate of occurrence, it is even considered by obstetricians to be normal in a healthy pregnancy. With this being said, we believe with so many other changes occurring during the pregnancy, it is important to relieve the mother of extra stressors that come from experiencing GERD in order to enhance the overall experience of pregnancy and impending motherhood. To supplement our discussion here today, we will next look into a patient scenario. JR is a 30-year-old female who is in her second trimester of pregnancy. When she was eight weeks pregnant, she started to experience symptoms of GERD, including a burning sensation in her chest, chest pain, and frequent burping. JR was prescribed ranitidine 150 milligrams twice daily from her family doctor, but it has not provided her with any relief of her symptoms. She has no known drug allergies, and her current medications include prenatal vitamins and ranitidine, as previously mentioned. She has no other medical conditions or past history. JR is now looking for another recommendation of something that she could take to help relieve her symptoms. Thus, based on the given scenario, our ultimate research question was concluded to be, in a 30-year-old pregnant female, are PPIs safe and effective in the treatment of GERD who is currently taking ranitidine with no relief of symptoms? Upon conducting a critical appraisal research process to provide optimal care for our patient, we started by searching PubMed for relevant studies. In particular, we were looking for case control studies to determine outcomes of pregnant women taking PPIs, such as omeprazole. We also looked into retrospective cohort studies to look at adverse effects of the medication. So our search terms were PPIs, or proton pump inhibitors, pregnancy, safety, efficacy, and GERD. The safety of fetal exposure to proton pump inhibitors during pregnancy was the first study we looked at from the Drugs in Pregnancy and Lactation resource. This was a large retrospective cohort study in which pregnant women had been exposed to PPIs, lansoprazole, omeprazole, or pentoprazole during the first trimester of pregnancy. It was concluded from the study that exposure to PPIs during the first trimester was not associated with an increased risk of major defects, and further, the study revealed that exposure during the third trimester was not associated with increased risk of perinatal mortality premature delivery, or low birth weight. The second study, the safety of proton pump inhibitors in pregnancy found using PubMed, was a prospective controlled cohort study that compared pregnant women in the first trimester exposed to omeprazole, lansoprazole, or pantoprazole. 
It was concluded from the results that PPIs do not represent a major teratogenic risk in humans and they are not associated with an increased risk for major congenital birth defects, spontaneous abortions, or preterm delivery. The third and final study we will discuss today is called the use of proton pump inhibitors in early pregnancy and the risk of birth defects, which we found on PubMed. This was a large cohort study and it was used to assess the association between exposure to PPIs during pregnancy and the risk of major birth defects among all infants born alive. The exposure period was from four weeks prior to conception through 12 weeks of gestation. It was concluded that the exposure to PPIs during the first trimester of pregnancy was not associated with a significantly increased risk of major birth defects. The studies that we have just mentioned are considered to be reputable as we have critically appraised all studies that were referenced. Initially, we were expecting to find information based on specific guidelines that outline the treatment of GERD in women who are pregnant. This was something that was not found after our in-depth search through various studies and resources. There were many cohort studies banned as expected due to the fact that randomized control trials were not safe for the use in pregnant population, but no specific guidelines were solidified. As well, it was quite difficult to try and find specific information on specific therapies that were both effective and safe in the various trimesters. Although there were plenty of resources and studies out there with good and credible information, there is definitely room for conducting further studies and presenting concrete information. Based on our findings, we recommended our patient, JR, to be prescribed omeprazole 20 milligrams once daily, taken half an hour before breakfast. Omeprazole specifically is a PPI that is listed as one of the drugs of choice for GERD in pregnancy for refractory cases after patients have tried non-pharmacological choices or lifestyle modifications plus treatment with other drug classes with no success. The dosing range of omeprazole is 20 to 40 milligrams, but we chose the lower end of the range as it is recommended to start on a lower dose of a PPI initially, as the higher dose may not be necessary. JR should continue this treatment for four weeks and then return for further assessment to ensure the medication prescribed is effective and tolerable. Although determined to be safe in terms of proper fetal development, we would assess safety in our patient in terms of adverse effects or reactions to the medication. Along with this treatment recommendation, we also recommend that JR continue to try other methods in attempt to reduce symptoms of GERD. Such methods include avoid eating up to three hours before bedtime, avoid lying down after meals, avoid tight clothing, and elevating the head of the bed by 10 to 20 centimeters. As well, JR should modify her diet eliminating irritating foods that may be spicy or high in fat, and choosing to eat small meals more often instead of large meals at once. Just to ease the minds of mothers moving forward, we also assessed information regarding the use of omeprazole while breastfeeding. Any small passage of proton pump inhibitors, such as omeprazole, into breast milk is likely destroyed in the neonate's stomach through acid hydrolysis. Data is limited, however, it has been concluded that omeprazole and pentaprazole specifically are transferred into the breast milk in small quantities. As well, lanzaprazole and omeprazole are used for the treatment of GERD in neonates and pediatrics, further implying safety in newborns. Thank you for taking the time to follow along with our discussion today. We hope this was educational and will hopefully be implemented into your practice. 
With the high incidence of GERD in pregnancy, it is important to feel confident in treating patients in situations effectively and safely. Hi guys, this is Ted, Andrews, Hapul, and Jennifer with you today to discuss chemotherapy-induced diarrhea and the options we have for take-home antidiarrheal medication. Many cancer patients are experiencing diarrhea due to the side effects of chemotherapy. For the treatment of chemotherapy-induced diarrhea, there are some discussions about the comparison of efficacy between Romotil and Imodium. Let us discuss more about this issue with the scenario. In this scenario, an elderly woman is experiencing adverse effects from chemotherapy. Specifically, she is suffering from grade 2 diarrhea, 4 to 6 bowel movements per day, for which Imodium has been prescribed. However, the Imodium fails to restore regular bowel movements, and the physician elects a course of Lomotil as an alternative option. The Lomotil therapy proves effective, as after two days, bowel movements return to normal levels. The patient has recently finished the three rounds of Folfox, which is a chemotherapy regimen used to treat stage 2 colon cancer. The components of Folfox include folinic acid, fluorouracil, and oxaliplatin. At present, the main concern is hyperkalemia, as low levels of potassium can lead to serious cardiac events including heart failure. Diarrhea can induce hypokalemia due to impaired absorption of potassium from food. There are no other medical conditions of note, and the patient is not taking any other current medications besides Folfox and Imodium. Our specific clinical question for this study is, in patients receiving Folfox chemotherapy for colon cancer, is Lomotil more effective than Imodium as a take-home anti-diarrheal? In order to design this question, we utilized the PICO format to clearly identify the population, patients receiving chemotherapy, intervention, Lomatil, comparison, Imodium, and the outcome, relief of diarrhea. The question was of interest to us as according to established treatment guidelines for diarrhea and chemotherapy, as Lomatil is not the first line option, but rather Imodium. Here is some background information on the medications that we are comparing in our clinical question. Lomatil is a combination medication composed of diphenoxalate and atropine. Diphenoxalate is the antidiarrheal, and atropine is an anticholinergic used to discourage substance abuse. The way Lomatil works to stop diarrhea in patients is by slowing down the intestinal motility by acting directly on the smooth muscle of the GI tract. We see Lomatil used alone or in combination with other antidiarrheals for the management of diarrhea in patients older than 12 years old. Some common adverse effects that are caused by using Lomatil are nausea, skin flushing, dizziness, sedation, and headache. Imodium is an antidiarrheal medication called loperamide. It stops diarrhea by binding to receptors in the intestine slowing GI transit time and allowing to, for more water absorption back into the body. We see Imodium being used in practice in both specific and nonspecific causes of diarrhea and is the recommended first-line agent in patients over the age of two years old experiencing diarrhea. Some common adverse effects of Imodium are dizziness, nausea, constipation, and abdominal cramps.
Diarrhea is a common side effect many patients receiving chemotherapy experience. This adverse effect is estimated to be as high as 45% with chemotherapeutic agents like arenatican and 5-fluorouracil. In the patient situation we have presented, they were receiving the Folfax chemotherapy regimen, which includes 5-fluorouracil, and is likely the cause of their diarrhea. When a patient taking chemotherapy presents with diarrhea, there are three key things that we must do. First, we have to rule out other causes of the diarrhea, such as the presence of an acute bacterial infection, an unusual food they ate, or something more serious than simply the side effects of the chemotherapy. Secondly, we would look at their diet and help them modify it in the short term so that diarrhea can be minimized. There are certain things we eat that can aggravate diarrhea, such as spicy foods, excessive fatty foods, and coffee, so it can be beneficial to recommend limiting these agents when possible. Finally, we look at medications that are used to treat chemotherapy-induced diarrhea. The three medications we use are loperamide, lomotil, the combination of diphenoxalate and atropine, and octreotide. The current guidelines stated by BC Cancer are that loperamide is used for grade 1 diarrhea that persists for more than 12 to 24 hours, or for moderate grade 2 diarrhea. This medication is first used at a lower dose of 4 mg to start, followed by 2 mg every 4 hours or after each unformed stool to a maximum of 16 mg per day, but can be increased to the 4 mg to start, followed by 2 mg every 2 hours if needed. The next medication, Lomotil, is said to be used at the discretion of the treating physician and can be used in addition to loperamide for grade 1 or 2 diarrhea according to BC Cancer. The final medication, octreotide, is often used in more severe situations where patients generally require hospitalization. This medication is given as a subcutaneous injection three times per day and is used for grade 1 or 2 diarrhea that persists longer than 24 hours despite the use of high-dose loperamide with or without Lomotil. Octreotide can also be used for patients experiencing grade 3 or 4 diarrhea. We searched through up-to-date Micromadextinomed, CMA's PG database, and PubMed. We found the medication monographs of, of Romotil and Imodium in CPS, and basic clinical information through the article titled Management of Side Effects of Cancer Therapy and Radiation Therapy in CTC. Up-to-date and Micromadex suggest their clinical recommendation that Imodium is a better agent for this case. We searched the primary research through PubMed and found some articles related to this clinical question. We found the original study and explored the information regarding the comparison of the efficacy between Imodium and Lomotil. When we were searching the primary research through PubMed, we do not have any date restrictions on our research and we evaluated articles in English only. We don't include any animal and pediatric studies. The search terms were chemotherapy-induced diarrhea, loperamide, lomotil, diphenoxylate, and imodium. We reviewed extracts of the articles for relevance, and then we read the full contents of the relevant articles for appropriate judgment. From up to date, under management of chemotherapy-induced diarrhea, it is stated that there are no available studies that directly compare the efficacy of Lomotil and Imodium in the setting of chemotherapy for colon cancer. 
However, the authors do provide a list of references that examine a number of comparative studies of Lomatil and Imodium in acute and chronic cases. Although these studies are not directly what we wanted for our case, they do provide some data in regards to the differential efficacy of these two antidiarrheals. Of note, the majority of these studies were conducted several decades ago, from 1974 to 1981, which made us question why further studies were not conducted beyond this point. The studies, in accordance with guidelines used today, demonstrated that Imodium was more effective in controlling diarrhea than Lomatil and was associated with a more favorable safety profile, unlike Lomatil, which is associated with CNS effects. We attempted to locate a meta-analysis evaluating the strength of the papers, but were unable to identify any such study. Based on available research, it appears that resolution of diarrhea with Lomatil rather than Imodium is an atypical outcome, which gives the case the potential to serve as a case report, thereby leading to additional studies. What our team recommended for MS, given that Lomatil is effective in restoring normal bowel movements in MS, we recommend that she utilize this drug again should she experience diarrhea brought on by future chemotherapy treatments. Although Imodium is recommended as first line in chemotherapy-induced diarrhea, it is important to consider that patients do not have uniform responses to drugs and so alternatives may prove more effective in controlling disease in certain individuals. Given that Lomatil is associated with adverse effects, we also recommend monitoring MS for nausea, confusion, dizziness, and drowsiness. This was a very interesting case, and despite not finding much clinical evidence regarding the use of Lomatil over loperamide, it is a great example of how certain medications can be beneficial to specific patients despite a lack of strong evidence highlighting the use of evidence-based medicine versus clinical experience. We believe that guidelines should always be followed and evidence-based practice is strongly recommended. However, once all options have been exhausted, the trial of other medications that could potentially treat the patient where the benefits outweigh the risks of the medication can sometimes provide a solution. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our evidence-based practice podcast. This is Emily Bisso, Monica White, and Danny Banham. We are third-year pharmacy students at Memorial University School of Pharmacy. Today, our topic will address the question of whether low-dose inhaled corticosteroids suppress normal growth in pre-adolescence with mild to moderate asthma as compared to treatment without corticosteroids. In community pharmacy, inhalers are dispensed frequently to people of all ages. It is common that when a parent drops off a new prescription for an inhaled corticosteroid for their child, that questions start to be asked. For several years, questions have been raised about whether inhaled corticosteroids affect a child's growth. We can understand how concerning it would be to hear that your child's growth could be reduced if they use their prescribed steroid inhalers. For that reason, today we'll shed light on what the evidence actually says about the use of inhaled corticosteroids and the effect on growth in children to, or to clarify any misconceptions around this topic. In order to bring light to this topic, we came up with a case that exemplifies what a healthcare professional could see in practice. So the case is, the mother of an 8-year-old boy recently diagnosed with asthma 
comes into the pharmacy to drop off a new prescription for Flovent HFA 50 micrograms one puff twice a day. After speaking to the mother, you determine that she is hesitant to give her son an inhaled corticosteroid because she read online that steroids can stunt the growth of a child. She's wondering if her son's growth will be affected by using this steroid inhaler. In order to answer this question, we started our research by looking in the product monographs in the Health Canada Drug Product Database to see if this issue was addressed and what was mentioned about it. What we found under the the systemic effects in the warnings and precautions subsection of the Flovent monograph is that growth retardation has been reported as a systemic effect of fluticasone. It also stated that a reduction in growth velocity in children or teenagers may occur as a result of inadequate control of chronic diseases. Just to compare with other inhaled corticosteroids, we looked up the budesonide monograph, which stated the same information as the Flovent monograph, with the addition of a double-blind study in children and adolescents treated with budesonide. This study showed that their adult height was 1.2 centimeters shorter than those randomized to placebo. We will talk about the study further on in our podcast. I think the first misconception that patients have about inhaled corticosteroids is when they hear the word steroids. When people think of steroids, they tend to associate that with prednisone or anabolic steroids, which are usually given systemically, affecting almost all of the organ systems in the body. These drugs tend to have negative side effects like osteoporosis, growth suppression, hyperglycemia, um, and hypertension, to name a few. Inhaled corticosteroids, however, are different because they work locally and they're rarely systemically absorbed. This is a key message to highlight to patients um, since the likelihood of steroid, steroid effects are much reduced when taken by inhalation versus oral administration. From here, we want to dig a little deeper to see where this evidence was coming from. So we consulted more comprehensive databases like Dynamed, PubMed, Embase, and UpToDate. In these references, we found very similar evidence. Slight differences were mostly due to the fact that the drugs and the doses compared differed depending on the study some studies focus on comparing effects on growth of specific inhaled corticosteroids like bagenicide, fluticasone, or beclomethasone against each other or to a placebo, while many other studies focused on the overall effect of inhaled corticosteroid on growth using high and low dose. In addition, while reviewing the literature, we determined that there are really two primary endpoints that were being studied in these trials. The first being growth velocity, which is the rate at which a child grows to reach their final adult height, and the second being overall height reduction, which is the reduction in adult height. In terms of reduction in growth velocity, studies showed that inhaled budesonide, beclomethasone, and fluticasone had a greater effect on growth velocity and overall height after the first year of treatment compared to placebo with budesonide being the only inhaled corticosteroids associated with significant reduction at two years. It was also noted that the effects on adult height did not appear to be progressive or cumulative. There is some evidence to suggest that higher doses of inhaled corticosteroids may cause a greater reduction in growth velocity than with lower doses of inhaled corticosteroids. It was indicated in two trials that there was a reduction in growth velocity of 0.2 and 0.48 centimeters per year 
for the high-dose in inhaled corticosteroid compared to the low-dose. Now, in terms of a reduction in overall adult height, we found the double-blind study mentioned in the Flovent HFA product monograph was actually pulled from the CAMP trial. This was a two-part study that, and was the first big prospective study that followed children using inhaled corticosteroids into adulthood, where children aged 5 to 12 years old were treated for 4 to 6 years with budesonide, nidocromil, or placebo. At the end of the study, a 1.1 centimeter mean difference in height was measured. When the patients were followed up again in adulthood through the effects of inhaled glucocorticoids in childhood on adult height study, a 1.2 centimeter mean difference in their adult height was measured, where the differences in adult height were deemed not significant. This evidence was further emphasized in a second trial titled Impact of Inhaled Corticosteroids on Growth in Children with Asthma, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, where similar results were concluded. After gathering all this information, we concluded that there was limited evidence pertaining to the effect of sotiquazone compared to placebo, as most of the evidence found was with budesonide. While it is noted that inhaled corticosteroids do reduce growth velocity and overall height in the first year of treatment, there is no significant reduction in overall adult height with the use of inhaled corticosteroids in childhood compared to placebo. The potential systemic effects of growth reduction can even be minimized by titrating to the lowest inhaled corticosteroid dose at which effective control of asthma is maintained. It is also important to weigh the risks and benefits of starting an inhaled corticosteroid with the possibility of systemic effects and the potential effects of uncontrolled asthma, because as we mentioned earlier, uncontrolled asthma can also affect a child's growth. Therefore, in response to our case, we have come to the conclusion that a low dose of luticazone, such as 15 micrograms in this case, it is unlikely that the child would experience a decrease in growth velocity or overall growth reductions. It would be best to treat the child's asthma with a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid to prevent effects of uncultured asthma, such as growth reductions and frequent exacerbations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the MedThread. You can reach us with your comments and topics you want to hear about by email at medthread at mon.ca or by connecting with us through the School of Pharmacy on Facebook. See you next month.